Welcome back to another episode of Divided State Citizens. I'm Michael Weil. And I'm Henry Simon. Thank you for joining us again. We are very happy to be back and we're ready to shoot the shit. Let's shoot it. Shoot the shit. Henry, what's going on? What have you been up to? I want to hear about it. Yeah, since our last episode, uh, I actually went door to door uh, within Astoria where I live. Uh, to try to get signatures for Congressman Crowley, who is running for re-election in Astoria, and well, actually Queens and part of the Bronx. He is the number four ranking Democrat, so it's important that we get him re-elected so that we can have some leadership when hopefully we have this blue wave coming along. Uh, so the big part of what we were doing is in order to run for office, uh, for just be up for election and be on any ballot, you have to have a certain amount of signatures saying that you can run uh, from people who live in your district who are registered in your party. So I was going door-to-door just getting signatures from registered Democrats in Astoria so that he can be on the ballot come primaries on June 26th. What kind of reception did you get? Really positive. It's actually kind of fun to do it because you get a list of all the registered Democrats. So you're not really going door-to-door to to random people. You're getting told exactly who you're going to. You know how old they are. You know their names. And you know that they're a Democrat. So they're usually happy to see you. (laughs) Exactly. This is why people are part of a party. They usually know why we're coming. Or if you explain it to them, it makes sense. I was envisioning people like yelling at you to get off their lawn or, you know. Luckily, I'm in the city, so there aren't any lawns. (laughs) Yep, that's true. (laughs) That's awesome. What have you been up to since we last recorded? What I've been trying to do recently is have a lot of conversation, like always having conversations about what's happening in the news and about politics. And I've been pushing myself to step out of my comfort zone a little bit and have some conversations, be it with family members or friends of mine who may think differently or feel differently about things. I've been pushing myself to have some of those conversations about a lot of these topics to, you know, with the goal in mind of making them a little bit less uncomfortable to talk about. I, you know, I'll think of some examples as we go through the podcast specifically, but there's always really something you can pick up and chat with someone about and have differing opinions on. So you've really been trying to take that sort of communication, that piece that we always talk about home. Yeah, heart. because I think you and I especially know this, but with everything that's going on, you have to communicate with people because you know this, I know this. When you disagree with someone and you come from like an aggressive standpoint, that person shuts down, you shut down, and it creates even more discord in the discussion. So I'm trying my hardest to go in with a really, really open mind, more more open than I thought that I had. And I'm trying to really listen to, to how these people think and feel. And I'm trying really hard to be overly empathetic so that I can not only hear them, but in return, I'm hoping that they will really hear me, which right now is, I think, the best thing we can be doing. So I've, I've been working on that a little bit in my spare time. That sounds really, really good and productive. Yeah. One th- I, th- I think it'd be nice if we saw that getting applied to a lot of things that are going on just in current events. I mean, we see what's going on with the March for Our Lives. Mm-hmm. I know we're not going to talk about it too much just because it's been covered so much, but you definitely see that in the reflection of both sides. Both sides have a little bit of trouble digesting what the other side is saying, and it makes it so that everyone just repeats the same points over and over again rather than listening and trying to adapt. Well, it's so tribal now. Yeah. So even if you are unaware of the issues, so even if you didn't know what March for Our Lives was and say you were a conservative or watch Fox News, you'll kind of automatically know that that's something you're against. And I won't use that as a blanket for everyone because, of course, not everyone feels that way. But it has become so tribal to the point where 
if you hear Democrat or if you hear Republican and an issue that comes along with it, you're out. You're like, oh, I don't agree with that. I don't want to talk to anyone who feels differently than me. So unfortunately, that's where we're at. But um, I think conversation is definitely first step. Definitely. One thing I actually I saw a conversation recently was with Keith Ellison. He brought up something that uh, I'd always talked about sort of off and on when I was in college and thought was a really interesting point where I read somewhere. Uh, he was talking about the concept of having a maximum wage. This isn't talked about enough. No. And I, I thought it was really interesting to see and to hear the, the, the people who were sort of gut reaction being against it. But I think... So can you can you just straight up tell me really quick, what is maximum wage and what did Keith specifically say about it? Yeah. So maximum wage is the concept of creating a ratio where the highest paid employee, typically a CEO, can only be paid, let's say, 25 to 1 of the lowest employee. Uh, so that really keeps in line, make sure that no matter what you're doing as your company grows, the payment is sort of spread throughout. It's creating that ratio. Uh, even if we were to jump it up a little bit more, if you're taking people making 30000 a year at like Walmart being a, a checkout, you're now sort of saying in order for the CEO of Walmart to make millions of dollars, they're going to have to up what they're paying their lowest employees. Uh, it doesn't cap growth. You can still hit unlimited potential, it just means that as you're rising up in your potential as the head of the company, you also have to bring up those who are lower because in any job I've ever been in, I'm, I know I'm young, I haven't had many jobs, but I've seen how things work. It's always a team. Everyone is the whole. And yeah. you need to have each part of that be part of it. So even though the CEO might have the biggest impact, they do get paid the most still. It's just crazy to me because you know I haven't heard a lot about this. I don't think anyone really has in the news environment, but it just seems to make the most sense. Definitely. I think to me, what I find really interesting about it is we know that a big portion of why Trump won and why Trump appealed to people was the sort of economic problems that we're having in in big portions of America. A lot of those parts of America currently are employed by places like Walmart and all these other companies. And you see these coal companies too. Their CEOs of these coal companies are making millions but the employees are making next to nothing. And can't feed their families. Exactly. And by putting this in place, it does. I think it might resonate with people in those parts of the country who are having trouble to make money, but they're still working for these mega corporations where the CEOs are making millions upon millions. And rather than trying to tax and pull it a different way and get the money in there and try to make it be fair through taxing, this is actually saying just pay everyone their fair share for the work that they're doing. It almost makes you wonder... Why haven't economists or, you know, very business savvy people thought of this already? And opinion wise, it sounds like it has a lot to do with greed. But it just, it, I don't know. It, it, to me, it makes the most sense because when a company is doing well, that should mean the employees are doing well. Yes, of course, people at the top, like CEOs, presidents, anyone in the C suite, they're going to be making marginally more money. Um, however, as they make marginally more money, the money of the people below them should be growing with them as per the ratio. Um, I want to just break this out into like a real live example, though, using figures. Go ahead. Um, just so that like this can make more sense to me and just, you know, in some type of work setting. So let's try and think of this together. Let's let's take an employee then. What business? Uh, we'll just say any minimum wage. But let's take a, like a, a decent minimum wage of what it should be, like okay. $15 an hour. What vertical? Uh, let's go with, uh, retail. Okay. Retail it is. (laughs) Um, okay. So we'll call this retail store, um, Michael and Henry's. They sell really great shit. 
and the CEO's name is Henry Michaels. Yes. Okay. He's American Dream. Worked really hard growing up. His this is all made up. His parents are immigrants. He saw them work hard when they moved to America. He did the same. He has made something of himself, and he now has this retail store. And um, he is the president, CEO, co-founder, what have you. Okay. His company has scaled. He has hired many talented people to work at his company. He also has a lot of minimum wage employees working at his company. So there's a huge disparity in right. in salary. Let's say he makes annually how much? I, like, let's say a million dollars. Okay. A million dollars is a lot of money to be making every single year. Sure. And, and maybe he'll make more. But let's say for right now he's making a million dollars. So with the minimum wage, let's set a baseline, 15 bucks. 15 bucks an hour. We'll say a person, therefore, works 40-hour work weeks, oh. 50 weeks a year. So eight so, hours a day, 40 hours a week, two weeks vacation. So we're giving them – they're making $30,000 a year basically. Okay. Which, again, not really enough money to survive – but it's what we currently are sort of working at for that. Yeah, we have to think of other factors too, like where are they living? Are they living in New York City? That's a really high cost of living. Oh, definitely. That plays a huge factor. But just off the example we gave of somebody who's making about $30,000 a year and the CEO making a million dollars, that's a 33.3% repeat. That's the percentage? That's the percentage okay. of the ratio there. So that right there, if we're saying, hey, let's set the maximum disparity to be a sort of 1 to 25, 1 to 30, this is a 1 to 33.3 repeat. That is a, a massive disparity. Both both parties are making wages that are good. I mean, the lowest ones still aren't making an extremely livable wage. Right. But the CEO is still making a ton. It's not cap and growth. But if he wanted to then make $5 million, let's say, at that same ratio. Now, if we're taking with $5 million... So we're going from one to five? Yeah. So we're saying he now wants to make $5 million, but he still needs to pay at the same 33%. But his resources are growing with him, the company's scaling. Exactly. Okay. If, if he still is... I just want to make sure he has the means to pay the employees that work for his company. So if he's scaling from $1 million to $5 million as his salary, that would mean that the once $30,000 a year employee is growing with his increase. It's growing five times as much. So what does which it make sense about that? $150,000 a year, which sounds like a lot for that minimum wage employee. But at the same time, $5 million a year is a lot for someone to make. So if they're trying to make those degrees, it's just constantly scaling people and making the ratios. Now, this is obviously not very flushed out, and Keith, when he proposed it, it seemed sort of like a joke to some people. Uh, and I think as it develops, what will be interesting is I think that there will be developing caps. So let's say you have 100 employees, your cap could be like a 1 to 25. Right. If you have 1,000 employees, maybe it's 1 to 30. And that way, the more people that you're employing as a leader, the bigger your cap can be. So that's allowing you then to grow even more. So if you want to be making $5 million, you then have to just employ – that many more people at that lower cost. And we're just spitballing. Exactly. There's a ton of variables that go into this and there's a and we're obviously like, you know, we aren't the founders of this idea, <laughs> but it's very interesting to think about. Like even using this made up example, it to me makes a lot of sense. And looking at it from a I guess a more macro level, society would be a lot better. Yeah, it would it really just help can deal with the growing uh, wage gaps that we have. And yeah. I think it'd be a really good way to combat that. In order to make more money as a successful person, you have to, one, pay your employees well, 
and two, hire more employees. And if those are the two factors that are going into getting yourself paid more, then to be a successful person, to make the most money, you're then bringing everyone else up who is helping you to succeed there. Great. Let's play devil's advocate for a second. Shoot. Um, I know a huge uh, pushback from people who feel differently than us about maximum wage may say something along the lines of, you know, what about performance? What about um, meeting quotas? What about individual performance? What happens if that person that was making $30,000, what happens if they were, for all intents and purposes, for maximum wage, you know, eligible for five times that salary because the CEO was going from $1 million to $5 million? What if they weren't performing to a level that warranted that increase? Well, that's why I think, for me, that I, I like the idea of having the ratio where you hire more people. Because I agree, not people aren't really going to be worth justifying a $30,000 yeah. employee jumping up to 150000 It's not going to exist It seems there. like a free ride if the company is doing really well. Exactly. But at the same time, if the company is doing well, this employee probably helped contribute to that. But they're also, if they're doing well and the CEO is doing enough to make that five times increase, they should be able to justify why they can pay everyone else more too. Meaning the workforce they would be hiring from would need to be way more skilled and exactly. yes, right. And there would also be a bigger workforce because if you're making enough money to be making five million dollars, in theory, you're scaling your business and becoming a larger one. So based on this sort of premise of it's your ratio depends on how many employees you employ, that thirty thousand dollar employee might jump up only to forty thousand dollars based on the ratio because they are therefore employing so many more businesses. Uh, if we're using our retail example, maybe that means we opened up a thousand new stores. So we have many more employees who are working in those stores. Which levels out. Which levels out, so it allows the ratio to be bigger and allows the CEO to make more while still employing everyone at a reasonable rate. Henry, I am ready to march on Washington about this and lobby the hell <laughs> out of Congress. What do you guys think about this? Is this, have you, number one, have you heard of maximum wage before? Is this something that makes sense to you? Is it something that you think would benefit capitalism in our society and the American dream. It sounds to me like the pros outweigh the cons right now. And I would love to hear what other people think about it. Yeah, I'd be interested for anyone who follows us on Facebook or Twitter. Let us know what your thoughts are. This is something that we heard a little bit about. We saw Keith Ellison talking about it and it really thought something we should be talking about, especially given so much of the news only focuses on Trump, on Russia, mm-hmm. on violence, things like that. This is that we overlook stuff like this. Exactly. This is something that we should, I, th- I feel, at least be talking about to try and find solutions. Because how did we get to where we are with Trump? Well, it was big economic problems, and this is one solution that is now being represented uh, by an elected official. And I think it's one that really resonated with me. And I'd love to hear what our listeners think as well. And even better, if you yourself are a small business owner or know someone who is. Ask them what they think about maximum wage because I would say it applies to them directly. Definitely. And I think if they stopped and thought for a minute, they probably have a ratio set up that is less than that 1 to 25 that I sort of made up out of thin air. Employees that are made more work harder, do better, a lot to think about. I think that this is really interesting. I'm going to keep talking about it because to be quite honest with you, this is something that I've learned about recently and I'm catching up to speed with now. So I do have a lot more research to do, but it does sound to me like something worth talking about more and more and more. Exactly. And we'll talk more about maybe this and other topics uh, when we get back from this commercial break. This episode of Divided State Citizens is brought to you by haggling. We'll, we'll give you this episode for like, I don't know, 250 
Three bucks? One fifty. Uh, two dollars. Two dollars. $2. Come on, you're breaking my balls. I can't go. I can't go lower. One seventy-five. It's a deal. And we're back, Michael. How how are you during that commercial break? I I just loved it. It was great. It was it was everything that I wanted it to be. That product that we plugged. Yeah, it's a great one. I hope you all buy it. I have four, and they're all different colors. Yeah, I, I have two of different shapes. Oh. One circle, one square. Henry marches to the beat of his own drum, and that's why we love him around here. <laughs> Anywho, one thing that I want to talk about with you is actually you, Michael. Oh, shit. What about? Just your background. I guess we haven't really talked about either of our backgrounds mm. too much on this podcast, have we? No. Well, how about just for the guests, because... As we always say, I can't say what someone else has done as much. Can you tell me a little bit about growing up and, and sort of who you are? Oh, and that I'm gay? Yeah, that, that's where I'm leaving Is that to. what you're fishing for? Yeah. Um, yeah. I grew up in Atlanta, as you know. Yes. And, well, actually, I was born in New York. It's a long story. Moved to Atlanta when I was one. Irrelevant. Um, one or two. But I grew this up is in, important information. Was it one or was it two? I believe it was two. Okay, we'll go with one and a half. Um, so I was thrust into the Bible Belt. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was very interesting growing up being, you know, it's so funny because hearing other people's journeys, other LGBT people, um, and how they grew into their own, everyone says that they kind of felt something, but they didn't know what to call it. And so thinking back to my childhood, I think I knew pretty early on that, like, I was different. Like, I remember elementary school days. Mm -hmm. So it was always there. I knew it was something, but no one was talking about it. I didn't know what it was called. So, yeah, it just, it was uh, growing up feeling a little bit different. And when did you, like, officially come out? I was a late bloomer. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't come out officially until college and and thereafter so when I moved to New York from Florida and was learning about myself (laughs) (laughs) I guess we're all always learning about ourselves I get one thing that I'm interested because you said like you started to notice you were different in elementary school but when did you realize that the different was just that you were gay I think I realized when I was just like oh I like guys (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I, I get that like that's what gay is, but like when yeah. did like how old would you say you were? Like was it how long before you came out do you think you were realizing that you were gay? Or did it sort of happen at once and then you finally came out? Yeah, I think what and like what happened from what I remember, I'm sure I repressed a lot of it. <laughs> but um I remember feeling some type of attraction, not knowing what it was, and then as years went by there was some point in middle school maybe where I came, I remember coming to like a conclusion with myself that it wasn't something that was going to change. And I remember that's when my relationship with myself got a little rocky mm-hmm. because it was almost, I didn't come to terms with myself, but I came to terms with the fact that this thing that I was dealing with was not going to go away and it was going to be something that I eventually had to own yeah. And I don't I was not ready for that growing up. That makes sense. I don't really know how we would prepare ourselves for something. Like we definitely there's I mean you you can obviously speak to it more, but I feel like there's a stigma around it. I think less so now 
at least looking at it from an outside perspective. So I'm curious, did you feel that? And that like, did you feel that there were certain people that made you feel, I guess, more accepted? Or did you always feel that there was people who sort of trusted that it would always be okay to talk to them about stuff like that? So I think that's a good question. I think the reason, part of the reason why I came out so late was because of the environment I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Um, My family is wonderful. I have a very um, progressive, liberal, open-minded family. However, growing up in some parts of Atlanta, it's, as you can imagine, not very welcoming. Um, I heard a lot of just really negative things growing up that Mm -hmm. I somehow internalized and hated that part of me. Right. So as to not sound as dramatic as possible, but I think that's what happens. And when you hear that over and over and over again, whether it be from friends that you're hanging out with or derogatory words that, you know, people later say, oh, but I didn't mean it. You know, you realize that it has nothing to do with whether they meant it or not. It has to do with society is tying this word or associating this word to mean something negative. So for me, that is... Okay, I am clearly something that is the butt of a joke that is less than yeah. rights-wise. And I kind of, to be honest, I remember having thoughts to myself even in high school, like, what am I going to do? Like, this sucks. Yeah. I remember thinking, this sucks. <laughs> and, you know, I wish I had had a different experience because I know a lot of, of other gay people who have had much more positive experiences than I did coming out. But... For me personally, I know everyone has their own journey. That's something that everyone always says. Um, Mine was very isolating, unfortunately. It wasn't that I felt like I couldn't talk to my parents, but I was pretty ashamed of it, I think. And it was something that I did not want to open up about. Definitely. I think the part that you're talking about with like the jokes is really interesting because to me that rings with exactly – we've had conversations about privilege in the past. Yeah. And it's the same way that like – as like my privilege is that I don't have to think about what that joke means because it doesn't affect me. And I think that that's a big part of where that comes to play where people, as you say, like, Oh, I'm just joking, but it's their privilege to think that it's a joke. And I think that I definitely can see how that's affected. And it's something that, I mean, I, as a middle schooler, was definitely responsible of stuff. I got bullied and, and got called like a fag and other things. And I'm sure I did the same to people as well because that was just the culture we were in, but it was sort of our privilege to be able to not think about the repercussions of that. Yeah. And I think I guess this is another question for you. Do you think I know we've definitely made lots of strides, and it feels like as a straight person looking in, it looks like it's a lot better. Uh, and it, for kids, hopefully, it would be a lot better and easier for someone who's in your shoes. Do you think that you see that as well? I remember in two thousand and eight when President Obama um, had just gotten elected, and he was in Chicago on going on the stage with Michelle and Malia and Sasha. Uh, with that gigantic sea of people, and he went to say that speech. And prior to this, gay issues were largely divisive, and we hadn't really come to a consensus on LGBT rights yet. Mm -hmm. But I remember vividly, I was in my room in Marietta, Georgia, watching that tiny little TV in my room. Um, And I remember still being in the closet and thinking to myself, oh my God, pinch yourself, you need to remember this moment. He said in his speech, he was saying something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, he's, whether you're black or white or gay or lesbian. And I remember thinking, oh my God, like, did he just say gay? Like, I remember being so struck by that. And that moment for me was a really pivotal moment in, I guess, the journey of me coming to terms with myself and, and being a very happy gay man. 
but I have felt it. I don't think it has, there's ever been a better time to be a gay person in Mm -hmm. the world. It's been so amazing and incredible to see how many allies there are out there, especially when uh, marriage equality came to the United States. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize there were that many people out there that cared so like fiercely for gay rights who aren't gay. I didn't know there were people like that out there. So being able to see that, um, being able to actually watch on TV the moment that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of that case, having a moment of, I am that much closer to being a full citizen as it pertains to rights, it has been such a special experience to be a part of. I think we are continuing to advance with equality. I'm super happy for the kids growing up right now who are struggling, but also realizing that there will be a really great life for them ahead. And that as cliche as it is, like it does get better because people stop bullying you and adults, believe it or not, are a little bit more mature eventually. So I'm I'm super excited for those kids who get to grow up now and like maybe they decide to come out earlier. Yeah, you know, um, could definitely be nice. And I guess one thing you brought up were the allies. And as someone who considers himself an ally, what do you think, like an like an ideal or like someone who's trying to be an ally should be doing? I think education is really paramount for any issue like this. One thing though that I've spoken to lots of people about that I think would do the most advancement would be in those conversations with guys or immature people. It doesn't have to be guys; it could be anyone. But who are having a conversation and use gay people as the butt of a joke or say something derogatory instead of laughing or instead of going along with it because that's the easiest thing to do. Check that person, Mm -hmm. not in a confrontational way, but just say like, oh, what do you mean? Or I don't understand because that's what I think flips the script. And you and I have, I know, spoken about this with other issues as well. So like with just as an example, with consent, we talked about this, Mm -hmm. but it's about kind of bucking at the traditional gay jokes that we've seen in old movies and in pop culture. And it's saying, you know, I heard you, but what do you mean by that? I I don't think that that's funny. Or why, why would being gay be something that elicits a laugh? There's a lot of things that allies can do. Um, I don't think just because I'm gay, I know the, all the answers to that. Obviously I myself am still, you know, in process, as I think most people are. But we all just need to be kinder to each other. I think we should all make more of an effort to understand each other and understand our differences and how, wow, this sounds very poetic, but how our differences are actually what make us stronger. Mm -hmm. I know that that sounds very poetic. A little cheesy. But I also believe in that. Like, I, I totally buy into that. I think that what's different about all of us And what we may be super self-conscious about is what makes us a better society because we all have different strengths to provide. We all have different things to add to the conversation. So bucket traditional things that haven't been working when it comes to gay issues, call people out, start a conversation and, um, keep challenging, you know, keep challenging what people say. That's, that's what will get us there. I'll definitely try to take that all to heart and hope that anyone else who listens, uh, if you're maybe in the closet that, that your story and, and the struggle and that the fact that this is, I don't think that uncommon that people, as you said, you're still processing and growing through it, um, are able to also digest that. And that anyone who 
considers himself an ally or might not consider himself an ally but wants to become one is able to take those points and, and really think about when they hear things uh, like a gay joke or something like that and yeah. be able to digest it. And I wish I could tell little Michael that people, when you when you grow up, they get a lot nicer and they're a lot cooler and they really like the fact that you're gay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so little Michael, <laughs> it does get better, dude. <laughs> it definitely does. Well, uh, we'll go now to uh, another commercial break. This episode of Divided State Citizens is brought to you by Henry Simon speaking Mandarin. 你好,我叫Hongli,你呢? And we're back. And that brings us up to our favorite segment. Michael, what's the name of that segment? Oh, it's just called Positive Points. Points, points, points. You know, one day we should actually make a soundbite that does that for us. We will. <laughs> we'll get there. Next time. Yeah, okay. Uh, but for now, we'll just keep going Positive Points. Okay, no? Take it away, Mr. Simon. All right, well, for my positive point today, I actually have one that focuses on China. Uh, China, according to one of their uh, news, state-run news agencies, Xinhua News Agency, uh, Xi Xinhua, who's a Chinese representative, said that China has already achieved its greenhouse gas emission reduction goal for 2020. Uh, apparently, last year, it achieved a 46% reduction of their 2005 levels, and their goal was to hit 40 to 45% reduction by 2020. Uh, so hitting the deadline a few years early, really positive because we're reducing the amount of greenhouse gases in the air. Good for them. That's awesome. Yeah, very positive point. Helping the world. Becoming a better place. Love it. What's your positive point, Michael? I would say my positive point definitely has to do with uh, the recent March for Our Lives uh, with the the kids from Parkland, Florida that went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. It was just so incredible to see how these kids have realized that adults have failed them. They are taking matters into their own hands. They created these marches all around the country, all around the world mm -hmm. um, that are, they're standing up for themselves. They're saying, we are dying. You guys are not doing anything about it. We're gonna do something about it. They, I was watching it all weekend, they said, this is a marathon, which I really liked. It showed that they were mature about this. Um, this isn't something that's going to be taken care of right away, but they know that they have to put a lot of work in. I see these kids being our leaders in the future, if not now. I mean, they're leaders now, but I see them being our leaders in government uh, in the future. So it was very cool to see that. It was cool to see that we are going to have such an informed electorate, which you and I try <laughs> to do with this podcast. And um, it made me it made me really excited for the future and for you know, for kids. Definitely. It's a very positive point. And with that, I'm Michael Weil. And I'm Henry Simon. And now the music will get louder. <laughs> 